All right, well, let's go ahead and, and pray. We're going to jump into a, a lesson. I'm going to warn you right out the gate. This, is, this may be a difficult lesson um, in some respects because uh, some of the subject matter we're going to use by way of illustration. But let's go ahead and, and pray. Lord, we thank you so much for this time for us to be together. We thank you for your word that is sufficient. And you've given us everything we need for life and godliness. We thank you, Father, for sending the word Jesus Christ. We thank you, Jesus, for sending us your spirit. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for giving us your word and illumining your word. We pray that you would open up our eyes that we may behold wonderful things from your law. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, the kind of the big question that we're asking is, what was the big deal about sola scriptura? During the Reformation, when we say sola scriptura, that means scripture alone. That was one of the five solas. It was a very big deal during the Reformation period. Part of the answer to that question is the Bible, the Pope said, does not have final authority. It is not all you need. It is not clear. It is not sufficient. Um, You need the word plus the Pope. You need the Bible plus church tradition. And in church history, really, there have always been popes, in quotes, uh, pick the issue and you will find people saying, the Bible is not enough, you need X. The Bible is not enough, you need Y. The Bible is not enough, you need Z. Um, So, Another way to state this question this morning is, does God's word have the attributes needed to speak to issues related to death and sin, life and damnation, hope and hopelessness, the soul, the psyche? Psyche is the Greek word for soul. Does the word have the authority needed to speak to issues related to death, sin, eternal life, damnation, hope, hopelessness, and the soul psyche? I used to be acquainted with a pastor in Orange County who has been in the news of late. In fact, this pastor judged my daughter in speech and debate many times. And he was overtaken by a condition for which many judgments have been leveled against him. And his salvation has been called into question. His family has been devastated. His church has been devastated. And there have been a lot of people on the Internet who speak with an amazing amount of certainty in respect to this pastor and and seem to have judged the situation And come out with some pretty firm answers on the mental, moral, and spiritual state of this pastor in respect to his actions. Even supposing to know um, his eternal destiny. The pastor I'm speaking of is John Rogers McFarland. Pastor of, used to be the pastor of Orange Thorpe. United Methodist Church in Fullerton was arrested May 9th on seven counts of lewd, lascivious acts with a minor under the age of 14 and four counts of lewd, lascivious acts with a minor between the ages of 14 and 15. And he was afterwards arrested 
and he is now in prison. I was acquainted with this pastor, and again, he did judge my daughter in speech and debate. You probably were thinking I was speaking of this man. Raise your hand if you, if you thought I was speaking of Jared Wilson. <clears throat> Jared Wilson is the pastor in Orange County who recently committed suicide on National Suicide Awareness Day. Um, a pastor who in his tweet said, loving Jesus doesn't always cure suicidal thoughts. Loving Jesus doesn't always cure depression. Loving Jesus doesn't always cure PTSD. Loving Jesus doesn't always cure anxiety. But that doesn't mean Jesus doesn't offer us companionship and comfort. He always does that. It wasn't long after this tweet that Pastor Jared Wilson took his own life. Why do I bring up these two pastors? Well, both dealt with depression. Uh, Both um, were pastors of of churches. Um, Both proclaimed to believe in the gospel. Both had committed sins that were devastating to themselves, their families, and their churches. Um, But the way they've been treated after their actions could not be more diametrically opposed. One man violated children. Another man killed a father, killed a husband, killed a pastor. And yet the treatment of the two are very, very, very different. And I want to be careful with this topic because there are people right in this congregation who have been both the victims of child abuse and the victims of suicide. Um, I'll just be honest with you. I'm a victim of child abuse. And so I have very strong feelings about a pastor who violates children. And we have people in this congregation who have had to suffer the throes of a family member, a friend who has committed suicide. So uh, as we talk about some of these morning's topics, I want to be just up front with you that some of the things that we may say could arouse emotions and uh, could arouse some feelings, especially if you have been abused by children or if you have a family member who has committed suicide. And uh, I just want to tell you right out, we've got a counseling department here. If there's some things that are said this morning that, and you feel like you need to talk to someone, you can come talk to me. You can come talk to Pastor Carlos. We'd be more than glad to help you talk through some of these issues. But I want to frame part of this morning's discussion by, by talking about what is it that, at least for me personally, what is it that I don't know about these two respective situations? And what are some things I know? Because it seems like when I read the Internet, and I've tried to honestly stay away from it as much as possible, I'm, I'm not really all that interested in hearing a lot of people talk about things they don't know anything about. Um, but here's what I don't know. I don't know um, the hearts of either of these pastors. Even though I know John, I don't know his heart. I don't know Jared Wilson. I don't know their situations. I don't know their background. 
I don't know their psychological state. I don't know if these guys were taking medica- medication. And I really can't judge their destiny. There's a lot that I don't know about these particular pastors. But here's what I do know. God knows. God knows. God knows. And the father has sent the son. The son has sent the spirit. The spirit has given us his word in the scripture. And the scripture is safe. The Bible is a safe place to be. There's a lot of things that I don't know in this life. And as Christians, we really need to be those that are very quick to say what we don't know. There's a lot that we don't know. At the same time, we also be, need to be those that are willing to trust and believe what we do know. And that is what God has revealed to us in his word. You guys look at the front of your packet, you'll see just kind of a smattering of verses that I've laid out from Psalm 119. Really come to love and treasure this psalm. And this psalm, you know, I've, I've thought of it in a couple different ways. One is Psalm 119 is a good theology of Scripture in, in micro it's kind of a good, if you want to know what the Bible thinks about itself, uh, read Psalm 119. It's a good place to start. But the more I've read Psalm 119, the more I've realized it's a good place to start to just get a philosophy of life. Just how should we live life? You look at Psalm 119, especially kind of with the New Testament understanding of Christ having come and lived and died and buried and raised from the dead. And there's a correlation between the word incarnate and the word inscripturated. The Psalm 119 is a great place to go. So I'm just I'm going to read through a, a number of these verses on the front of your packet. And we're going to use this to springboard <clears throat> into our topic on the scriptures, the attributes of the scriptures. So look at Psalm 119, verse 47. Uh, the psalmist says, I will delight myself in your commandments, which I love my hands also I will lift up to your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. The psalmist delights and loves the scriptures. When we see commandments and judgments and statutes and ordinances, we're not going to get into all the little distinguishing aspects of those words, but they all have to do with writs, written scripture. You look at the next place, cough is not just, it's, we're not talking about a cough. This is uh, one of the letters in the Hebrew alphabet. When you're reading through Psalm 119, you've got an acrostic poem where each of these eight couplets actually begins with the same Hebrew word or he- Hebrew letter. So in, Psalm, uh, in verse 81, it starts with my soul faints. And the English word faints, it starts with the Hebrew word cough. And so faints is kind of like the theme of this section. So verse 81, my soul faints for your salvation, but I hope in your word. My eyes fail 
from searching your words, saying, when will you comfort me? I want to suggest to you that faints and fail. This is kind of a poetic device. It's on purpose. It's like you're meant to be shocked somewhat by where he faints and where he fails. The idea would be, I'm fainting from what? I'm failing into what? You would think it would be, I'm fainting from exhaustion. I'm falling because of whatever, hopelessness. But he faints into salvation because I hope in your word. My eyes fail in your word. And then he says, when will you comfort me? For I have become like wineskin in smoke, yet I do not forget your statutes. That's one of my favorite images in the psalm, wineskin in smoke. What in the world does that mean? Or if you were to hang a wineskin too close to a fire, that wineskin would shrivel up and look like a shriveled prune. And so a wineskin and smoke is a very, very, uh, it's, a, it's a really amazing image of someone who's been so hampered by age and probably trials that they've shriveled up like a prune. So a wineskin, it's leather, right? You put it too close, it gets heated up and it just shrivels. So this is a, the, the psalmist is talking, I've been shriveled by the smoke of life. This person is someone who's probably depressed and overwhelmed with the situations of life. And what does he say? Yet I do not what forget your statutes. All your commandments are faithful. They persecuted me wrongfully. He's been treated wrongly. And what does he say? Help me. They almost made an end of me on the earth, but I do not forsake your precepts. Look at Mame. So this begins with the, the Hebrew letter Mame. And it, the title is, Oh, how? That starts with Mame. Oh, how? I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. You, through your commandments, make me wiser than my enemies. For they are ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers. For your testimonies are my meditation. So the psalmist believes that he's wiser than his enemies and wiser than his teachers. Not because he's such a smart guy, but because he meditates in the word. I understand more than the ancients. I'm wiser than ancient people who I haven't even read. Because I keep your precepts. I have restrained my feet from every evil way that I may keep your word. I have not departed from your judgments for you yourself have taught me. Think about 102. I have not departed from your judgments. The other part of the couplet is for you yourself have taught me. The psalmist is, is basically saying the judgments and God himself are to be equated. His judgments and God are to be equated. And it's God who does the teaching through his judgments. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts, I get understanding. I hate every false way. I get understanding from your precepts. Every other false way, I hate that. Noon. <clears throat> this is not noonday. This is the Hebrew letter noon. And, and, and the, the Hebrew le- uh, word in our poem there is lamp. Your word is a lamp to my feet, a light to my path. I'm afflicted very much. Revive me, O Lord, according to your word. What gives this person who's afflicted very much a light? What gives them direction? It's the word of God. Verse 120, my flesh trembles for fear of you, and I am afraid of what? Your judgments. You and your judgments are equated in the couplet. You, God equals his judgments. And they make him fear and tremble. Finally, 145 to 148, I cry out 
with my whole heart. Hear me, O Lord. I will keep your statutes. I cry out to you. Save me. I will keep your testimonies. I rise before dawn of the morning. I cry out for help. I hope in your word. My eyes are awake through the night watches. This is someone who has insomnia that I may meditate on your word. So this person, whoever wrote this particular psalm, um, they faint, they fail. They're crying out for help. They're crying out for comfort. They're afflicted. They tremble. And yet what we see is God is equated with his word. In this particular psalm, God is equated with his word, spoken, prophesied, incarnated in Christ. And in this psalm, inscripturated. Let me just not to I don't want to overly belabor the point, but uh, consider also you could turn your one Psalm 119 verse 25. Psalm 119 verse 25 is another part of the psalm that you get this idea that the psalmist is overwhelmed. It starts off in verse 25. My soul clings to the dust. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt like your soul just clings to the dust? And then in the middle of the psalm, verse 28, he says, my soul melts from heaviness. What do you do for someone whose soul, whose psyche clings to the dust and their psyche and soul melts from heaviness? What do you do for somebody like that? How do you help someone that they just continually, they're just, they have this dark cloud that follows them around. Have you ever been in that kind of state? Have you ever known someone like that? I know a lot of people who have just felt like they've just got this dark cloud that follows them around and they, they try to think about scripture and they still have this dark cloud, right? Um, But what does the psalmist say? Verse 25, revive me according to your Word, I have declared my, uh, my ways and you answered me. Teach me your statutes. He realizes he needs to be taught of God. You can read the Bible, but you still need to be taught of the Holy Spirit. Make me understand the way of your precepts. He realizes I can't understand it unless you make me understand it. So shall I meditate on your works. Still, I've got something to do. I want to meditate. My soul melts from heaviness. Strengthen me according to your word. I need to be strengthened. Remove from me the way of lying and grant me your law. There's lies all over the place. Remove the lies. I can't even sometimes discern the lies, but grant me your law graciously. I have chosen the way of truth. Your judgments I have laid before me. I cling what? Same word. Before he was saying I cling to the dust. Now what is he clinging to in verse 31? Your testimonies oh lord do not put me to shame as i as i cling to your testimonies don't shame me publicly for clinging to your word in verse 32 i run the course i like the way the new king james says this i run the course of your commandments for my you shall enlarge my heart i run the course of your commandments just like running a like cross country meet i'm gonna run the course of your commandments. I'm going to run here. I'm going to run there. I'm going to run through all your commandments. I'm going to look at the whole word. I'm going to give my heart entirely to it for, and here's his belief. You shall enlarge my heart. Is that true? The psalmist says, if we run the course of his commandments, you will enlarge my heart. What does that mean? Heart is, is the Hebrew idea of, the mind, the soul, 
the psyche, the decision-making processes, the will. It's the internal person. You can enlarge me. You can make me bigger than I am right now as I run the course of your commandments. Is that true? That's just a basic question. When the psalmist says, I will run, I'm making a decision. I'm going to run the course of your commandments. And then he makes a propositional statement. You shall enlarge my heart. We just need to ask folks, is that true? Can God, through his word, enlarge our hearts when we run the course of his commandments? It's either true or it's not. I want to suggest that to you. And I believe if if you give yourself to Psalm 119, one of the things that you're going to find is that the psalmist equates God's word with God himself. Folks, we only have access to God through his word. God is equated with his word. Spoken, yes. Prophesied, yes. But now incarnated in Christ and inscripturated for us. Let me give you a quote from Kevin DeYoung. This is a... A quote that I find very helpful in helping us understand this topic of the scriptures. Kevin DeYoung says, let me make a bold, but I think defensible assertion. We should approach the scriptures with the same reverence we would have in approaching Christ. Some people would just be aghast at that statement. But follow his logic. He says, The fact of the matter is we are far too quick to exaggerate the distinction between the word of God inscripturated and the word of God incarnated. Do you understand what he's saying? Word of God in the Bible, word of God incarnated, Jesus. The language of the word is rightly used because in both instances we were referring to God's self-disclosure. Further, the two different notions of the word are in this age inextricably linked. The Bible is the word of God inscripturated that continues to make Christ, the word of God incarnate, available and knowable to us. Let me read that last statement again. The Bible is the word of God inscripturated that continues to make Christ, the word of God incarnate, available and knowable to us. Christ is available to you and I right now this morning and knowable to you and I right now this morning because we have an inscripturated word. We have a word more firm, Peter says, than even the appearance of Christ at the transformation. Yeah, I mean, think about it. If If you could have the choice between being with Christ face to face like the disciples, just just think about it. Imagine you're Peter, James and John and you're going around with walking around with Christ. You're John. You're you're able to lay your head on Jesus's chest or shoulder, whatever it was. Right. You're you're at the table. You're you're called the beloved disciple. You're Jesus' best friend on earth. You're walking around with him. Do you think it would be better to be in that situation or to be where we are today with the Bible? What would you say? 
I'd rather be there at the table with Christ, right? Wouldn't you? Looking eyeball to eyeball. And yet, what does Jesus say in the book of John? He says, it is better that I go away, because if I don't go away, I will not send the what? Comforter. But when he comes, he's going to guide you into all truth, and he's going to bring all things back to your remembrance. And then what's the comforter going to do? He's going to guide these apostles to write down scripture with perfect recall, Holy Spirit-filled scripture, and then now we've got the word of God. We got prophecy more firm, confirmed in us. And now we're in this situation where we can be filled with the spirit in Ephesians 5.18, the parallel passage, Colossians 3.16. What does it mean to be filled with the spirit? Colossians 3.16 tells us, let the what word of Christ dwell in you. What richly. That's what it means to be filled with the Spirit. It's to let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. So if you really understand what Jesus is saying, and if you really track what the apostles are saying, and we'll have to look at it. I don't know if we're going to be able to get to all these verses today, but we'll get get to some of them. Peter himself says to have the written Word of God put you in a more enviable position than he was in when he saw Christ transformed on the mountain of transformation. That's crazy. So I don't know about you, but a lot of times I just don't believe that. A lot of times I just believe, man, if I could have just been with Jesus in the upper room, I can't wait to be with him in glory. Now we know being with him in glory is going to be a different gig, right? Because we're looking through a mirror uh, dimly right now. But compared, I'm, I'm comparing us in our situation right now to the disciples around the Sea of Galilee, they would all say, we're in the better spot. Why? Because we have the Bible. Not just that, we have the Holy Spirit illuminating the Bible. Again, read through Psalm 119 and look how many times the psalmist is saying, teach me, teach me, open my eyes, do not hide Guide me, teach me. Well, who's doing that teaching? Who's doing that guiding for us today? The teacher, right? Who is the teacher? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit really is here. Is the Holy Spirit the junior member of the Trinity? No, do you have the Father? He's pretty strong. Jesus comes along. He's really strong. And now you get the Holy Spirit. And he's just kind of, well, no. Not much I could do. All I got is the Bible. You guys read the Bible, there's not much I can do for you guys. No. He is our advocate. He's our teacher. He's our comforter. All right, you guys are getting worried because we're not filling stuff in. What we're going to do is is just look over. We're going we're gonna to talk about real quick, and I know you, some of you guys are going to hate me for this. <clears throat> we're going to talk about all six of these attributes really, really quickly because I, I want to answer this big question is basically uh, does God is he able does he have the authority to minister to these needs that we have in life through his word with the aid of the Holy Spirit can he help us with our sin death issues can he help us with our hope hopelessness issues can he help us with our death eternal life issues the big issues of life that the Bible is meant to address, can God help us with those things? 
Now, the Bible's not going to help me put up my curtain. You know, Katie needs me to put up some curtain rods at the house that I keep forgetting about. The Bible's not going to help me learn how to do my drill right and drill it in properly, right? But the Bible can remind me to say, serve your wife, right? Dwell with her in an understanding way. Remember things that your wife needs, right? There's things that the Bible can help me with. So let's talk about the authority of Scripture, first of all. And again, we're gonna we're just going to fly by these more kind of to answer the big question. Got a bunch of review slides here that we're skipping. Okay. So what, what do we mean by the authority of Scripture? Um, the authority of Scripture is basically this, is that it means that all that the words in Scripture are God's words in such a way that to disbelieve or disobey any of the words in Scripture is to disbelieve or disobey God. That's a good definition from Grudem. And I think we saw that right in Psalm 119, right? God is equated with his word, right? <clears throat> we see it in the New Testament. We see it all over uh, the Old Testament. We're not going to really get into all the details about how that the New Testament basically says, thus says the Lord 2,000 times, or over 2,000 times, and that God has said to speak through his prophet. The New Testament views the Old Testament as Scripture. The New Testament puts its own um, self into the into the technical category of graphe or Scripture. And, you know, the apostles, they definitely thought of their writings as Scripture. Um, I will emphasize this passage or this idea that Jesus had promised the Holy Spirit would bring all that he had said to the disciples' remembrance and guide them in all truth. So there's this pre-authentication of the writing of Scripture through the Holy Spirit. And, um, and so we have the Scripture is self-attesting. The Bible attests to itself. There's nothing that you need to look to outside of the Bible to determine whether the Bible is authoritative other than the Bible itself. Because if you appeal to an outside authority other than the Bible, then that authority is higher, right? When God in, in Hebrews 6 wanted to make an oath to confirm his promise, uh, because he could appeal to no higher authority, who did he swear by? Himself. If God were to swear by something other than himself, what would that demonstrate? That there's a higher authority than himself. If he says, I swear by reason i swear by logic i swear by this or that then there's some higher outside source but he can only swear by himself so if god is god if the bible is god's word then you cannot really appeal outside of god's word to basically establish its authority does that make sense that doesn't mean that the bible does not comport with reality as we look at the bible we look out at reality we see it comports but we don't have to look outside of scripture to to establish its authority now, the Book of Mormon, when you look outside of the Book of Mormon, what do you see? No archaeological evidence whatsoever for any of its claims. That's why all most Mormons are liberal today, because they cannot affirm anything inside of their book, outside in reality. But in the Bible, we believe the Bible because it is authoritative. It claims to be authoritative. It has the ring of authority. Then when we look out to reality, it comports with reality. Right? We don't look to reality to establish this authority. But we look to the Bible itself to establish this authority, and we see that it does ring true also in 
reality. Some people say, well, this is, that's a circular argument. You can't do that. You can't appeal to your authority to develop your source of authority. Well, all arguments for first things are of necessity circular arguments. Philosophers know this. All arguments for first things are of necessity circular arguments. I don't have time to develop this a whole lot, but we'll just say this. If you say reason is the ultimate authority, how do you know that? Because it's most reasonable choice, right? If you say logical consistency is the ultimate authority, how do you establish that? It's logical to make it so. Senses are my authority because my senses have never discovered another one. There can be no ultimate authority because I don't know of any such authority. All arguments for first things are of necessity circular. If a person who is a rationalist appeals outside of rationalism for his ultimate authority, then he's just debunked himself. And so we have to be consistent with that if we understand the Bible as authoritative. So therefore, to disbelieve or disobey any of God's words is to disbelieve or disobey God himself. How should we respond to that? Basically, this is how we respond. And that is, we say, we learn the whole word of God, not just part of it, all of it. And we answer the question, Does God or can God speak authoritatively to issues related to death, sin, eternal life, damnation, hope, hopelessness, the soul psyche? We say yes. God's word can and does speak authoritatively. If we look at God's word, if the Holy Spirit illumines his word, if we've arrived at the right interpretation of his word, then we can say, I know this for sure. I don't. There's a lot I don't know. There's a lot I don't know about these two pastors we were just talking about. But if I find something in the word of God, I can say, I know that. I don't know this, but I know that. Let's talk about another thing, inerrancy. Does God's word speak truthfully on issues related to death, sin, eternal life, damnation, hope, hopelessness, the soul, and the psyche? We would say yes. Inerrancy is basically the idea that scripture, inerrancy of scripture means that the scripture in the original manuscripts does not affirm anything that's contrary to fact. In the original manuscripts, you guys understand that we have this is the, the Bible wasn't written in English, right? White English people didn't create Christianity, right? The Bible, Christianity originated in North Africa, in the Middle East with a bunch of dark-skinned people who spoke different languages from English. English didn't arrive until around the thousand, right? Right, with the Normans. Remember the Norman invasion? And then finally you have some early, you guys all remember your uh, Canterbury Tales and the, the guys before that where English develops, right? There's a reason why when you read Shakespeare, none of us understand it. Right. That's a long time. Uh, so, yeah. So the Bible's written in Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek, and it's from dark skinned people and so on and so forth. And so but so uh, so in the original manuscripts in Hebrew and, and Greek and Aramaic, um, we have the original manuscripts. They don't affirm anything contrary to fact. And so that's why the Bible comes along and says things like this. And I'm just going to highlight the flawless. His word is flawless. Psalm 12, flawless, flawless. You just see this all over the Bible. Scripture is also infallible. That means inerrancy is the fact that the Bible is wholly true. Infallibility is a result of inerrancy because the Bible is true. It never deceives or misleads. God's word is always reliable. If we really understand what scripture says about itself, if you follow what the Bible says, rightly interpreted, it's not going to lead you off a cliff. You're not going to be like, okay, I'm going to follow the Bible because Pastor Mike says follow the Bible and whoa, and you're going to fall to your death. 
Not because of Pastor Mike, but because of what God says about his word. The Bible is true. The Bible does not mislead. Uh, Maybe next week you guys ask me about what do we mean by original manuscripts? What do we mean by copies and so on and so forth? I can show you next week uh, some of the aspects of textual criticism and how we get to the Bible the way it is today. That's beyond the scope of today. Let's talk about the clarity of Scripture. Is the Bible, let's ask that question again. Is the Bible, does the word speak clearly enough on issues related to death, sin, eternal life, damnation, hope, hopelessness, and the soul and the psyche? Uh, One of the words that you'll see in some of the theologies is perspicuity. Everybody say perspicuity. Yeah, so we changed it to clarity because perspicuity is hard for people to say and they don't understand what it means. Basically, we're just talking about God's word is understandable is that we can understand God's word. Here's a definition of perspicuity or clarity. Let me go back to it. I'm always skipping by these guys. The clarity of scripture means that the Bible is written in such a way that its basic teachings are able to be understood by all who will read it, seeking God's help and being willing to follow it. So there are some criteria on the clarity of scripture, but we believe that the Bible is clear. It's not just for priests. It's for all people. It's meant to be understood. God didn't give us word. He didn't say your word is a darkness unto my feet. No, your word is a lamp unto my feet, right? That's the clarity of scripture. In fact, you know, uh, Deuteronomy six in, uh, in Deuteronomy six, we're told to teach the Bible to our children. That implies that it's clear enough for children to understand that we should teach it to children. Uh, we should also realize that the Bible, most of the books of the New Testament are written to churches, not to pastors. There are a few written to pastors, but even those are meant to be circulated amongst churches. There are some moral and spiritual qualities that are needed for right understanding. We've talked about that. Chief of which you got to be saved, right? Scripture is veiled and will appear foolish to the unbeliever unless the Holy Spirit overcomes the effects of sin. We see that in a number of different passages, 2 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 2, the natural man, the veil is taken away in Christ. But also the scriptures are unveiled to believers who come to them with a desire to obey. If anyone chooses to do God's will, Jesus says, he will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak of my own authority. So, Even a Christian can come to God's word and walk away unchanged by it. So we have to come with a willingness to obey. There's a couple of other qualities that we won't spend a a ton of time on, but we ask God for help. If anybody lacks wisdom, let him ask God who's not stingy. He loves to give help. James 4, 4 to 7, there's a spirit-endowed humility that's required, right? Um, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. So guess what? If you're coming to God's word and you're full of pride and we don't want to repent and we're trying to read God's word, guess what? Now you're being resisted. But the solution is just humble yourself just a little bit. Baby steps of humility. God's like dumps his grace on you and he loves to open up your eyes. Uh, Also, just this abiding in the love of Christ, spirit filled, spirit led, walking in the spirit. All these are synonyms for the same idea. If we're abiding in the love of God, that gives us greater abilities to understand the connections of scripture. So if, so if the Bible's so clear, why are there so many people 
misunderstand it, well, we answered that question a couple weeks ago. Go ahead and listen to it on the Internet. The problem always lies in, not in Scripture, but in ourselves. Um, we do have to... We have, do have to be careful there. We do have indwelling sin still as, as believers. We're different levels of maturity, right? Um, just because I'm a born in Christian, just because I'm a pastor, just because I've known the Lord since I was 14 years old, doesn't guarantee that I cannot make misinterpretations of the Bible and misunderstand certain sections of scripture. I'll just be bonehead honest right now every day without I'm not I'm not blowing smoke up your nose. I'm not exaggerating. Every single day I come to a passage of scripture. I'm like, I didn't know it meant that. Wow. And then frequently I find little notes in my margins of my Bible. And I'm like, that's wrong. And I have to correct my old notes. That's part of the process of us growing in Christ. But that's part of the, the job of the Holy Spirit, right? It's, it, 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 shouldn't it kind of make sense that I'm now a, a little bit older? I have a lot more of God's word under my fingertips. There's a lot more fodder in my heart that the Holy Spirit can use. And there's a lot more connections that are being made now. And the Lord is granting me some extra humility. He's brought me through, through some things. And so there's certain things that are opening up that maybe I wasn't seeing quite as much before. So that's just part of the process, right? But that doesn't mean that the Bible's never clear. As soon as I became a Christian at 14, I was a brand new Christian. There's a lot of things I didn't understand. But I'll tell you what, I remember what it was like trying to read my Bible before I was born again. And the day I became born again, all of a sudden I'm like, whoa. Now it's like that honey that the psalmist was talking about. Your word is honey to my mouth. Why did the Bible seem so boring when I wasn't a Christian? And then the day I became born again, I didn't understand everything. But I'm as a 14-year-old, I'm jumping up and down in my bed because I'm excited about a Bible verse. What kind of weird 14-year-old male jumps on their bed because they're excited about the Bible? Brian, that's just weird, right? Why would you do that? But that's what the Holy Spirit does in our life. All right, we got three minutes. Necessity of Scripture. The reason I gave all these fill-ins is because I knew we weren't going to get to everything. Does God's Word speak indispensably on issues related to death, sin, eternal life, damnation, hope, hopelessness, soul, psyche? Yes, it does. We'll just give you the definition. The necessity of Scripture means that the Bible is... Where's our fill-in? The Bible is adequate. It it is it is. Uh, why don't I even have them in my own notes? Indispensable for knowing the gospel. It is needed for knowing the gospel. Necessary. There you are. It is necessary for knowing the gospel, maintaining spiritual life, for knowing God's will. But it is not necessary for knowing that God exists, knowing something about God's character, moral laws. Look at your notes on all the scripture uh, supports for that. Yes, we need the Bible to get saved. Yes, we need the Bible to grow. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by what? Every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. All right. So we need it to grow. We need it to know God's will. But a person doesn't necessarily need the Bible just to know God exists. That's in the heart of man, also in nature. Or to know something about his moral laws. 
and character because even unbelievers will kind of get a basic idea but what do they do with that basic idea they make excuses and accuse other people right romans 2 um, so the bible is necessary for the for some things it's not necessary for a basic knowledge of god and then lastly the sufficiency of scripture is is the bible this is really kind of this is kind of like the final question is the bible enough is the bible enough uh, on issues related to death, sin, eternal life, damnation, hope, hopelessness, and the soul psyche. And we would argue that, yes, the Bible is enough to deal with those kinds of questions. The Bible, again, is not going to help me put up the curtain rods this afternoon, hopefully. But the Bible can help me with sin, death issues, eternal life, damnation issues, hope, hopelessness, the soul psyche issues. The sophistication of Scripture means that the Scripture contained all the words of God he intended for his people to have at each stage of redemptive history and that it now contains all the words of God we need for salvation, for trusting him perfectly, and for obeying him perfectly. All that to say that we are to search for God's word in Scripture alone. God considers what he has told us in the Bible to be enough for us. Let me just end by how that, why that gives us so much hope. You come across an issue like we've just been talking about today. One pastor commits suicide. This other pastor goes off and molests children. I'm trying to figure out what in the world is going on here. These guys are supposed to be pastors. These guys are supposed to be shepherds of souls. The Bible says, let not many of you become teachers. We'll receive a stricter judgment. What, what are we to say about that? Well, we don't know. We don't know these guys' hearts. We don't know all their situations. We don't know everything they were doing. There's a lot we don't know. And I, I've honestly been a little shocked how, how people have stated things, very prominent people have stated things in public about how certain they are about certain things about both of these guys. Um, but if God's word says it, you can bank on it because it comes from God himself. There's a lot we should say. I don't know. I've got, had a lot of people come ask me questions about these two guys and other things. And I hope I'm saying I don't know more than I used to. But when God's word speaks specifically to an issue and it speaks about a lot of issues, does it speak about sin? Yes. Does it talk about death? Yes. Is there a lot in the Bible about suicide? Sure is. Is there a lot in the Bible about psyche, soul, hope, hopelessness, things like that? Did the Bible have anything to say for 18 years before Freud came to the picture? Had a lot to say. What about the Pope? The Bible have much to say. Or do we need the Pope? Do we need the church councils? Pretty much, it seems like so often, almost every week I'm getting another article in my inbox or in my Twitter feed or something like that that's basically the message of the article is the Bible's just not quiet enough. You need X, you need Y, you need Z because the Bible doesn't go there. Brothers and sisters, I want you to at least challenge you to think about that question. Maybe people think the Bible doesn't go there because we've changed all the terminology and we're not using biblical terminology to really identify core issues. If you change the terminology and then you say the Bible doesn't talk about it, that's really not fair. So, and I'll have to end on this because I'm two minutes over, but so for instance... You know, the word dinosaur is a word that was basically invented in the 1800s, right? You put a couple Latin words together, 
and you got a word dinosaur, right? The Bible says nothing. It never uses the word dinosaur. So I guess the Bible has nothing to say about big, large animals because it doesn't use the word dinosaur. Is that true? Does the Bible have absolutely nothing to say about huge, large animals because the word dinosaur is not in the Bible? That's at least a question to, for you guys to contemplate. When we change terms and then say the Bible can't talk about it, I, I start asking questions. Let's, let's go back. Let's look at what the Bible does talk about. Let's admit what we don't know. Let's look at what we do know. And let's use biblical terminology, trusting that the Father gave the Son, the Son gave the Holy Spirit, the Spirit gave us a word and scripturated, and he's in the business of illuminating it to us in our hearts if we'll run the course of his commandments to see our hearts enlarged. Will we run the course of his commandments? Do we believe he can enlarge our hearts? I believe he can. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, we, there's a lot we've talked about today. And these are some uh, sensitive issues, the way we frame this lecture, knowing that I'm sure others like me have been the victims of child abuse. And there are those in this room who have had, or also the victims of someone who has committed suicide. They've had to deal with the devastation of that. And uh, Lord, we really can't sit here and judge these two pastors and every aspect of what went into their sinful decisions. What we can do is look at your word for answers. We can look at your word for comfort. We pray for these families, uh, we, both of these families, Lord, that you would really minister to the devastation. We think of the McFarland family. We think of the Wilson family and the, the devastation that is left in the wake of these decisions. Uh, but we do believe, Lord, that even in the wake of these devastations, Lord, that your word, your spirit can minister to these families. You can minister to these churches. And uh, and Lord, we want to be those that really believe that your word is powerful, is true, will not lead us astray. It is necessary and it is enough. We thank you for your spirit that illumines your word, help us to repent daily so that we can see more of it. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.